The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Hey, geek, you got a microphone? Why don't you record a podcast for me, dweeb? Don't make me podcast. You wouldn't like me when I podcast. Come on, you're wearing purple podcasting pants and holding your wizard magazine. Tell me all about the 90s comic book industry, Professor Funny Book. Beauty humans, try make Hulk record into tiny talk stick. Hulk just want to read comics alone. Hulk, no podcast. Greetings, comics lovers, and welcome to episode six of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the show where we re-examine the comic book industry of the 1990s through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Currently bounding through the desert, propelled by the power of my mighty gamma-irradiated thigh muscles, I'm Adam. And something is coming your way. Something big. I'm Michael. <laughs> So tonight we have a very special guest. He is my oldest and longest friend my entire life. He was the best man at my wedding, and he is pretty much the reason for which I read comics. My friend Joe. Joe, can you say hi to everybody? Hey, everybody. How you doing? Well, I, I gotta say, the legend of Joe is finally fulfilled. We've been teasing you since episode zero, and you've arrived. Believe me, I've noticed, and I appreciate being here. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Joe, whenever we have a guest on the show, we tend to start off with more or less like your origin story. Give us a little background on the first time you were really exposed to comics and, you know, having a dad who was into comics growing up and, and kind of introduced you to the world. Tell us a little about your backstory. Okay, well, looking back into my time stream, sorry, I have Doctor Who on the mind. My first exposure to any type of comic or character was actually Superman. I had this golden book, Superman Adventure Story, and I guess I've always known that character. And then that turned into one summer when I was around seven, my father got a phone call from his mom saying she found a whole bunch of his old comics and she wanted to know if he wanted her to keep them or throw them away. And he said, God, no, keep them. Next time we're there, we'll pick them up. And we went. I heard this big thing about these comics, this long story of what he collected and what he had. And he couldn't wait to show them to me. They lived about 45 minutes away from us. So that drive was really long for me. Because I, you know, I was very young, and when we got there, he explained to me before he even opened the box that these things will help me learn how to read, you know, improve my reading skills, and it'll be something I could take pride in. But we have to take care of them. And then he opens up the box, and now that I know what they what they are, I see Avengers number two, Avengers number four, Daredevil number one, all these amazing comics. And ever since that moment, they've been a part of my life. That's awesome, dude. 
I didn't realize that part of the story. So, Adam, we were growing up, we always hung out. We lived around the block from one another, and, you know, we'd go over to this house, and we'd watch Batman 89, or we'd watch Super Friends, and we would, you know, read comics together. And, and Joe's dad was a major influence on me as well, just getting me into comics and, you know, hanging out in Joe's, you know, bedroom. He had all these posters of the Hulk and Superman and everything else, and it was such a, it was a cool experience for me in getting into comics. Yeah, and I'm curious, Joe, now, where did you guys keep these books you know after you retrieved them where was the the special collector's den in your house oh we yeah we had an actual den in my house we called it <laughs> den where the tv was and everything i don't know if michael has told you that before no but, no uh, i was guessing we went down the comic shop and we bought like long boxes for him and some of them my father had bought this special thing for the wall to hang up like 12 comics oh. on the wall so actually in my den after we retrieved them they just became a part of like a fixture in the house like i there's avengers number two hanging up on the wall in the den and i still have that thing he framed them in to this day so here's the question i have then so obviously like michael has told us that you guys were going to comic shops together did your dad start reading and collecting with you guys or was he just feeding the hobby for you no he he read with me my old man he really did take part in it it wasn't just for me it was something we did together like we would go to the shop on saturdays and on sundays like the whole morning we would read books yeah it was great yeah, it was really a part of him too it was just it was for both of us and so ultimately, who would you say was his, you know, when you looked at either his collection or just what he told you, who was his main hero then? Oh, Daredevil, big time. Daredevil is has a special place in my heart for being such a big deal to him. When he was telling me these stories about comics and how he read as a kid, this was like the 60s, and he told me that he read Daredevil, and then he immediately went to the library and looked up gymnastics books. So he could learn how to like fall like Daredevil would. I always remember he told me Daredevil would get hit a lot, but Daredevil would always fall with the punch and roll and land on his feet. That was his favorite character. That's so interesting. He picked up how he would recover in a battle so quickly so that he could <laughs> get back yeah. into the action. Yeah, that was a really cool story. I always love that story. Now, when you guys started collecting together during your hangout sessions, what was your kind of big moments? Did you guys have times when you went to a shop and you picked up a, an issue that maybe you didn't know was a big deal at the time and then it became a big deal? Like, are there pieces in your collection to this day that you're like, oh, glad I picked up that book? I picked up Infinity Gauntlet number one the day it came out purely because it had the Hulk on it. That was the only reason I picked the book up. I didn't know anything about the story. I didn't know how it had major implications to the Marvel Universe. I just picked it up because it had George Perez drawing the Incredible Hulk on it. And it's like a tiny picture of him, too. It's not even like he's the whole character on the, the main character on the book. So, like, that, Spawn, number one, so many other comics. I mean, like, stuff that matters to me, like Morbius, number one, because they, they relaunched him in the 90s. The Hulk, my, my old man used to bring me stuff back from his job in the city and he would bring comics back sometimes that I, we, when we couldn't get to the shop, that's how I read Peter David's run on the Hulk was he was bringing them back and I get to read them after I did my homework. So Hulk 377, when they merged all the personalities into the Hulk, 
I read that as it happened. Like, that was a big moment for me. That book is what made me love comics, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I know, obviously, Michael has continued collecting, reading. Is it still a big part of your life today? Is that a fandom that just continued? Or did you have a, a dropping-off point and then come back on? What, what's your, your history at this point? I think I definitely uh, dropped off a little bit when I uh, learned about women. But... Uh, <laughs> It's come back and forth, back and forth. Um, we have my, my wife and I have a daughter. She's four. I read every chance I get. I still go to the shop maybe once a month where I was going like every week, but I do pick up my books and keep up with it. And I, I'm a huge nerd. I just love comics. Like I get something very special from these characters and it's always going to be a part of my life. Now, I got to say something. You know, Michael has brought this up. Our past guests have joined in the chorus of girls will get you out of comics. Girls never got me out of comics. I kept reading while I was dating. When I met my wife, I was wearing a Thor t-shirt with like the hammer of Thor printed on it. So like I've kept that to this day. <laughs> like, remember, you still married me and I was wearing this. <laughs> that is so cool. So Joe has a unique thing and the fact that he was able to get his wife into reading comics she became obsessed with walking dead right oh yeah she had every issue and she still does she still collects it she has every issue the, the comic shop gave us the first volume of collected stories as a like a wedding gift oh her. wow and that's what got her into it and i'm so proud of her she's read all of jeff johns's green lantern run which he's my favorite writer michael probably has told you i'll gush about that guy if i get the chance <laughs> but she's read why the last man uh, i i haven't even read that and it's it's like, that's her book. It's pretty cool. She's all right. I don't give her enough credit sometimes. <laughs> that's pretty good. I, know I, I have a quick Walking Dead story because it, it was never my choice. Like when it started coming out, I was like, ah, you know, I'm still a superhero guy for the most part. But my brother, who was never into comics, got into Walking Dead also right from the start. So again, he was all, you know, planning all this survivalist stuff. He's like, oh, this is what you would do. And he learned how to build all these <laughs> structures. He's like, I could build a house out of mud. I was like, okay, that's awesome. But anyway, so he... He lent me, like, the first five volumes of Walking Dead. And so I was reading them, and I would take them to work and, like, read them at lunch and stuff. And so I had them in my car. And uh, in my single days, I lived in kind of a rough neighborhood. It was not the uh, the classiest neighborhood. And I came out one morning, and my car had been broken into. And all they stole were my Walking Dead trades. <laughs> oh, God. Really? Yeah, they wow. were that valuable to them, I guess. Or they just found nothing else. They're like, ah, grab these. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, Joe, we are excited to have you on here. I know we're going to get into even more uh, of your history, but I think it's about time that we open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. <laughs> So, Tony Nguyen from Alhambra, California writes, Dear Wizards and Wizardettes, On Spider-Man number 16 and X-Force number 4, was it the very first time an issue was printed sideways? I've been wondering, what's the difference between Comic-Con Wizard number 1 and a regular Wizard number 1? Well, anyways, I have many great ideas for what you guys should do, like making bumper stickers of each Marvel and DC character so their popularity could go up. Please print and answer my letter. I've bought every issue of Wizard except for Wizard number 1 because it was sold out at every comic book store I went to. P.S. I've enclosed a Series 2 Marvel trading card for $2.50. This is a bribe to print my letter. <laughs> 
<laughs> at least he was up front. So and just for those who are wondering, so that's a follow-up for us from our episode two, where we actually reviewed Spider-Man 16 and X-Force number four. So let's see what Wizard had to say about that sideways deal. So their response to Tony was, People have been printing books sideways for years now, but not too often. We think the first one ever was Fantastic Four number 252. We're sorry to hear you couldn't find Wizard number one anywhere. But there's an ad in every issue of ours for readers to send away for our back issues. So go for it. The Comic-Con Wizard number one is different because it was distributed at the San Diego Comic Convention a few weeks before the regular Wizard number one came out. It has a Comic-Con logo on the cover, and they're kind of rare. About your bribe, though, a Shatterstar card? That's it? No hologram? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's so great, man. Once again, John Byrne, the great innovator. So Fantastic Four number 252 is the first sideways comic as far as they know. But I I just think that's interesting, too, that there was, for those who don't know, that Comic-Con edition of Wizard number one. We do not have that in our archives. If anybody wants to donate it, feel free. But they do advertise it in every issue, like they said. You can just, oh, yeah, order your back issues. And for what we've learned, Wizard wasn't selling that many copies to begin with, so they must have had a lot in the warehouse i'd imagine so it's funny the other day i was over at bailey's comics picking up my regular books and i was talking to them about our show and they said oh when we were in our other location we had every single issue of wizard magazine but we figured nobody want them so we threw them away oh. <laughs> I, was like, I was like oh no we had everyone <laughs> Man, I was like, really? You had all of them? Yeah, we had all of them. In a couple of long boxes full in a room. I was like, oh, no. Now, speaking of our correspondence in Willie Lubkin's mailbag, one special thing we'll note is the awesome thing about Twitter and Instagram right now is comic book creators from the 90s are very active on there, and we've already had interactions with Joe Quesada, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, so we really uh, encourage you to go find us either on Twitter at Wizards Comics or on Instagram at Wizards underscore Comics, and you might see what those creators are saying about our opinions and some of the questions we're asking them, so just another plug for the social media. No, seriously, I've, I've been you know reading along on our tweets and and responding to a lot of people. They're really enjoying the show. We're getting a lot of really good feedback, which is which is really super exciting for me. I'm I'm pumped about it. Yeah, it really makes a difference, and we're happy that we get to share some fun with you guys as well. We just sent out uh, recently some vintage 1994 Spider-Man the Animated Series Valentine's cards and a little something extra in there. So for those of you who are lucky enough to order it, hope you enjoyed them. But now it's time for. The Wave Riders Wayback Machine. And this is February of 1992. And for those of you who don't realize, this was a very exciting month for movies and music. I can honestly say I saw every one of these movies in the theater. And the first one, Wayne's World, Party Time, Excellent, February 14th, woo-hoo, woo-hoo. 
I had no idea that that came out on Valentine's Day. I had no idea. I, I would have thought it was a summer movie at the time, but I was like, whoa, February 14th? Okay. Yeah, like I remember the tagline was, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll hurl. But I would have thought there would be something to do with val- Valentine's Day in that. I got to tell you, though, I walked out of the theater, vivid memories of my friend Colin, and we just walked out and we were just swinging all over the place. I mean, that's what you did if you're a 10-year-old kid walking out of Wayne's World. Swing! I think I walked out with Whiplash from doing the headbang from Bohemian Rhapsody the first time. <laughs> so the next movie on February 17th is a Robert Downey Jr. classic of Chaplin, which if you haven't seen this movie, it is a fantastic movie, and he probably should have won an Oscar for this movie. The big thing about this is this was his last big role before all his drug issues until Iron Man, really. I mean, he started having bit parts and things. He kind of came back with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and stuff, but that was still more low-key until Iron Man. So, I mean, that was a long stretch for him, really, that he was not really uh, welcome on Hollywood movie sets. Now, the next movie is an absolute classic. If you haven't seen this movie, you haven't lived. It is the Sylvester Stallone classic, Stop, or my mom will shoot, which came out on February 21st. Oh, Stallone, getting into the comedy. You know, Estelle Getty from Golden Girls. I just remember, like, the pained expression on his face in the trailer. Stop, or my mom will shoot. You know, he's just like, (laughs) I can't believe he has to say it. Such a horrible movie. What a disappointment. That I, I, It could have been hilarious, but it was one of those movies where you walked out of there just like, oh, I wasted a lot of money on that movie. And movies even then were so cheap. I'm just like, oh, that was, that was two hours. I'll never get back in the rest of my life kind of thing. Now, the last one is a movie that I really like, but a lot of people don't for various reasons. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which came out on February 28th. Do you guys remember who's starring, I believe it was Chevy Chase. That's right, but do you know who directed this? Was it like Steve Martin or something like that? No, John Carpenter, of all people, directed a comedy. Really? Yeah. And I I saw this in theaters, too, and the only scene I remember was when he eats some food, and then he sees it... Digesting. ...passes out or something, because it's so gross. (laughs) Oh, wow. And I actually, I have to say, uh, just on that topic, just by happenstance, I actually was in a used bookstore today, and I saw the original novel, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I thought this was just a movie, but it was actually based on a book. I thought it was, like, you know, loosely based on the Invisible Man movie of the black and white film. Yeah, you would think, but no, I guess somebody else had an idea to update the story. So now, in the world of music, in February of 1992, we start off with... Crisscross, make you wanna jump, jump. The Mac Daddy make you jump, jump. <laughs> On February 2nd. I, I can't tell you how many times I probably wore my jeans backwards for about two months till it stopped being cool back then. But yes. I remember I, that. <laughs> don't judge me and my school actually had crisscross days so like they would say it's crisscross day on tuesday wear your clothes backwards i mean they were that big a phenomenon that even oh. the teachers knew who they were 
it was as much of a phenomenon as the hammer pants, which I also did, as we've <laughs> talked about in the past. The next one, uh, I have a little bit to introduce here. Let me let me mention this one because you'd you'd go for it because I I I didn't even know that he had an album prior to any of this. So the next album is Buckethead Land by Buckethead, released on February fifth. So for those of you who do not know who Buckethead is, he's probably most famous now for briefly being in the reincarnated Guns N' Roses with Axl Rose before Slash actually got back on board. So he had this, like, freak show band, Axl Rose, in the early 2000s that he was calling Guns N' Roses. And Chinese Democracy, you know, the album they eventually put out that was in production for years and years, Axl Rose blamed that album not coming out on Buckethead. He's like, oh, he was temperamental. He was difficult to work with. It's all Buckethead's fault. (laughs) But Buckethead is this weird guy. I've seen him several times in concert. He comes out wearing a white expressionless plastic mask and a care bucket on his head and he moves like a robot and he doesn't say anything he just plays guitar and he's an amazing guitar player and he's just like super fast you know just it sounds like computer you know music basically coming out of a guitar and he like pulls out nunchucks and he does routines he's the most entertaining weirdo you'll ever see on stage and so Buckethead Land was actually his first album but it was released in Japan only so I, I bought it years ago when I got into Buckethead Buckethead Land I actually went to Guns N' Roses at Madison Square Garden when it was Axl Rose and Buckethead and that wow. whole crew. Yes, I saw it live in concert. Axl Rose was a bit overweight at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Made about 17 hockey jersey changes during the concert, and it was actually a lot of fun, a really good show. Who opened for it was one of the Beastie Boys who was just DJing, which was weird. Anyway, moving on. So the next one I have never heard of. I don't know this. Maybe you guys know more about music back then than I do, but, oh, it's uh, like Henry Rollins' band, Rollins' band, The End of Silence, on February 25th. For those who don't know Henry Rollins, you know, he was uh, lead singer of Black Flag for a time. And then he had Rollins' band, and he is famous for performing basically just in shorts, and he's always, like, super jacked, you know? But he's, he's got no shoes on, he's got nothing. He just is on stage, got the mic wrapped around his fist, he's just screaming into it. Henry Rollins, just I just think he's a figure who, outside of his, you know, hardcore punk persona, is this man who espouses philosophy. He would have, like, you know, radio shows and podcasts, and he just likes to write books and talk about the world. You know? <laughs> then he gets on stage, he's like, get up, alive! Liar! Joe, you uh, Rollins band fan? Yeah, I am. I love Henry Rollins. And I love Black Flag. So yeah, really, I didn't know that. Learning something new. Look at that. Yeah, things you learn about your friends on the Wizards podcast. Exactly. And ladies and gentlemen, that is this week's Wave Riders Wayback Machine. All right, now it's time to jump into our table of contents to find out what this issue is all about, because this is Wizard issue number six from February 1992, and the cover of this is a pretty intense illustration by Sam Keith. And what do you guys know Sam Keith from mainly? He did the Max for Image when he went over there. I've known him just because of his art style is so detailed yet cartoony to me at the same time 
I don't remember what book he was on before that. I know he did a few Marvel Comics Presents with Wolverine. His right. Wolverine is absolutely insane. Yeah, I've actually got uh, Marvel Comics Presents number 90 in front of me here with this Wolverine cover. And he's like inside a globe and there's a woman laying on a bed and Wolverine's all slashed up and just hunched over her. Like it's kind of a, a weird cover, this brutish thing. That, but that's what he was known for, right? Was drawing these big burly characters, especially the Max ultimately. But... But there's actually something really interesting about him is that he was the original artist on Neil Gaiman's Sandman. See, I didn't remember that. Now that you say that, it, I kind of remember now, but off the top of my head, I did not remember that. Yeah, and it's just kind of a bizarre, from what we know him for and where he really got notoriety. Although it kind of makes sense when you look at the Max, you know, and then you have like the villain in there. But is he Mr. Nobody or Mr. No One? What's his name? I think it's Mr. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. And then like he's like got all his minions around. So it sort of makes sense. It's kind of a Sandman vibe to it. But I also think it's interesting when you think of creators and i don't know if you guys do this but when i am like imagining an artist because i look at their art style i always tend to think oh yeah they match what they're drawing (laughs) and if you look at sam keith he is anything but a big muscle-bound lughead you know (laughs) like he is just he's just the guy with these giant 80s glasses he's got like a mini mullet and a mustache he's just a skinny little pencil neck geek that's so awesome (laughs) that's pretty funny you gotta love it so you're saying there's hope for me then, because I kind of look like something like that. That's cool. Hang in there. <laughs> the next article they mention is Doc Bruce Banner, belted by Gamma Rays, which is a history about the Hulk. Then Beyond the Hulk's Frontiers, which is an interview with Peter David, who was writing the book at the time. And then speaking of Sandman, they have a section talking about the Neil Gaiman Sandman. Basically, this guy is praising Neil Gaiman's choice to switch up artists for each arc. Because he's talking about, like, he keeps a continuity. He's weaving characters in and out of the stories from previous storylines and kind of giving them their own spotlight in a story. But he would get different artists to kind of give each one a different flavor. And then he goes on basically to list all the different Neil Gaiman projects. Some of these maybe you guys have heard of, and I'm curious to know. Obviously Sandman, then something called Violent Cases, Black Orchid, Miracle Man... Oh, I'm a, I'm a big Miracle Man fan. I when they re-released the uh, entire run in the late 2000s when Marvel finally won the legal battle. <laughs> yeah. I own every single issue. Wow. And I also own the Bowen Design Miracle Man statue, which was the second statue I ever bought. And uh, I'm a huge Miracle Man fan. I I like that character a lot. I I actually never finished all the issues because there's so many of them. And even for me, like sometimes they're a little bit too intelligent for me. I was like, I was getting headaches. (laughs) Whoa, this is deep stuff. I need a break. Yeah, because I, I have all the the Alan Moore issues, except for the infamous birth issues. But yeah, so it's like, I, I love that early stuff. I, I've always wanted to read the Neil Gaiman run, because I heard it really goes a different direction, where Miracle Man has basically become ruler of the world. The next up was Good Omens, which just became a TV show, right? It, On it, Amazon? It's, it's an Amazon Prime show. I know some people that really enjoyed it. I couldn't get through the first episode, honestly. Uh, but it's an interesting concept, I guess. 
And then the last one was something called Words Without Pictures, which was basically just a collection of short stories by Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore and Steve Bissett, Mark Evanier, and uh, that was an Eclipse Comics book. So a couple other things to look for in back issues if you're interested. Next up is Drawing the Sword, which was an interview with Alan Davis, who, speaking of Miracle Man, actually had worked with Alan Moore on the early Miracle Man stories and did the art there but at this time he had been with chris claremont excalibur but actually davis had stepped away from the book just due to scheduling issues he couldn't get the art in on time and then claremont left the book because <laughs> he just left marvel after the whole <laughs> x-men dust up but i'm curious michael because obviously your favorite x-men character kitty pride moved over to excalibur along with nightcrawler did you ever read that book I did not read the 90s run. I know of it. I've looked a lot of images at it and and whatnot. But at the time, I just never picked it up because, you know, back then when you're 10, 11, 12 years old, you kind of stick with what you know. It's like I knew Batman, I knew Captain America, Spider-Man, Superman, you know, the basics. And that's kind of like the lane that I went down. When it became other books that were outside of the things that I knew regularly, I wasn't I didn't know to pick them up back then. What about you, Joe? Did you ever pull Excalibur from the stone? See, I loved X-Men, but like Michael was saying, you, when you're that age, you go with what you know. All I remember from Excalibur is seeing these beautifully drawn pictures by Alan Davis, but they kind of I, I kind of remember they all felt like they were set in England, and I just couldn't tap into it because, I mean, all I knew was Long Island. It just felt far for me. Yeah, it was like, it was X-Men Europe, essentially. Yeah. And, and it was kind of an odd perspective. And actually, Alan Davis, the whole reason they're doing this article is he's coming back to the book not only to draw it, but now he's going to write it, which was kind of the trend for Marvel at the time, right? Got a hot artist, let him write and draw a book. Okay, oh, yeah, maybe definitely. that'll boost sales. Also in the mix was a version of Phoenix, who was Rachel Summers, who was like an alternate timeline daughter of Scott and Jean. And it, it always confused me, but I just remember reading her trading cards, because she was in like every series of Marvel Universe cards. She was a big character at the time who was kind of changed. I assume these days is she still around in the X books? She's still around the X books. She was a very big part of a lot of stories that have happened over the last four or five years, including the Hickman run on House of X and Powers of X. She was a big deal. She was also very involved in the uh, Brian Michael Bendis all new X Men, where they brought the '60s kids into the modern day and she played a major role in that as well and she's also had a lot of connections lately with cable because of her future and he kind of like rescues her from a few different things because she becomes like almost like a like a demi-dog it seems like they're steps brother and sister in a way because they're both from the future they're both scott's children like it's kind of weird yeah next up is hollywood heroes and you're actually talking about the original Batman 2 script, so we're going to get into that shortly, as well as Toying Around, Brian Cunningham 
lists his top 10 superhero action figures. We can't wait to share ours. And then they return to the science fiction heroes. This is part two of the article that started last month. And this one focuses mainly on Adam Strange. They just state that he was unique because he would travel between Earth and Rand to visit his girlfriend and also, which was odd for the day, had a planned happy ending to his story at that period. So it's just like, oh, story's finished, it's over, as is the trend with science fiction superheroes but either of you adam strange guys are you dowed with the rand thanagar war <laughs> I, I love adam strange i really do i just know him at a super, superficial level i've seen him in cartoons and things but i always really dig the character he, he always he, he just seemed like he's spaceman with a fin on his head and a laser gun that's what he always was to me i love characters with fins on their head <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking, I really do. Like, Savage Dragon, Crimson Avenger, I I dig all of them. Nice. He's kind of like DC Comics' answer to, like, Buck Rogers, in a way. And he's actually been popping up a lot recently in the Superman books and in uh, Action Comics because of some things happening with Superman in the current run. And Adam Strange has been popping up a lot. Like, he was in in several issues in the past couple months. Oh, okay. Well, he's back. Yeah, he's one of those guys that goes away for a while, but then there's, a, there's some sort of cosmic event. You know, the anti-monitor comes back or something, and Adam Strange just kind of like appears periodically here and there. He's one of those type of guys. Yeah, and I feel like they've mentioned a couple times also in past issues we've discussed that, that he was getting rebooted at the time, but they were making him grim and gritty, and it just wasn't the same. All right, moving next is in... Pat McCallum's uh, Collecting Comics in the 90s column, he just mentions briefly, what is the difference between a comic book with a UPC symbol and one without? And basically, he gets into that, say, the bottom left of any comic normally, you're seeing either a barcode, or you're seeing a picture of a character, or you're seeing some sort of advertisement. In Marvel, the 90s, it was all about the anniversaries, right? So it'd be like 30 oh, years yeah. of the Fantastic Four, 50 years of Captain America. Gee, that sounds very familiar to today. Superman's 1,000th issue of Action, 1,000th issue of De- Detective Comics, Wonder Woman 750. Like they're doing all those things now again. It's it's kind of come full circle. Obviously, a UPC is meant to go to a newsstand, which really doesn't happen anymore. You can scan it at the register, and the other is for direct sales at your local comic book store. It basically says, as for price difference between newsstand and direct sales, it's rare that one would be more collectible than the other occasionally a book like the second printing spider-man number one comes along and suddenly the upc version is super hot but in general that's uncommon some collectors prefer the non-upc books because of the artwork found in the box but that's a personal preference and has nothing to do with values we talked about a book recently that the second printing was more valuable than the first yeah, right? in episode four, it was Robin miniseries, but it was the second printing book. Did you look through your logbox? Did you find it? Do you have the one with the black starburst on it? Don't have that one. I have I have the first printing of it, and then I have issues like two and three of that ah. run. But I do not have the second. I wish I did. I was like, oh, man, I'll put that on eBay tomorrow. <laughs> 
<laughs> Get your 68 bucks. Yeah, there you go. Now, next up in Wizard Comic Watch, this is interesting. This is just basically where they always highlight a few issues that they think are going to be hot, get you some money soon. This one in particular mentions the first appearance of one Cletus Cassidy. So what they were talking about was that was in issue number 344 of The Amazing Spider-Man. And then in issue 345, he gets a piece of the Venom symbiote from sharing a cell with Eddie Brock. Uh, But this is the most interesting part of this. It says, who... Okay, okay, he's not a household name, but when Amazing Spider-Man number 361 hits the shelves next month, featuring the dramatic full comic debut of, all caps, Venom Spawn, a.k.a. Cletus, it sure will be. Yep, as if Venom wasn't bad enough running around the Marvel Universe, the piece of Venom's costume which ripped off and attached to Cletus in issue 345 has grown, turning this average serial killer into one mean super-powered serial killer. Gosh, (laughs) how cool is that? Two Venoms? With the popularity of the original growth, with his every appearance, who knows how long before this issue is a certified gem. But is that fascinating? They did not have Carnage picked out, and they are calling him Venom Spawn. Wow, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know if that came in when they're like, okay, what are we going to do with the character? What's our storyline going to be? Oh, Maximum Venom Spawn? Maximum Cletus? Oh, (laughs) Maximum Carnage! Okay. Just a little piece of comics history, and I gotta be honest, in doing this show, this is the most exciting stuff to me. Finding the rumors, or the announcements, and then how things get changed down the line. So uh, discovering this is like gold to me. I'm like, oh, they were calling it Venom Spawn before we knew who Carnage was? That's awesome. This is pre-Twitter. This is the Twitter that was of the 90s right there then as we close out here one of the last sections aside from obviously our card price guide and our comic book price guide is in the market watch section which is another basically rumors like this is the kind of stuff that you would hear in the absence of twitter back then that you would hear at the comic shop right like people with their i heard this i heard that yeah this is probably gonna happen and so this is really interesting to me and it's got a little something excited here for joe as well it says a lot of new products are on the horizon for 1992 a second ghost rider series spirits of vengeance will be a monthly book starring johnny blaze and the ghost rider also on the way are morbius the living vampire night stalkers starring hannibal king frank drake and blade as mystic bounty hunters and the 2093 series which takes place in marvel's future introducing us to future versions of spider-man punisher dr doom and lots more if nothing else 1992 will certainly prove to be an interesting year huh 2093 yeah remember those 2093 books oh yeah <laughs> that really hung around yeah remember when spider-man 2093 showed up in into the spider-verse <laughs> so there's a couple things that i'm seeing here that i found really interesting first of all they, they're talking about in this in this market watch is punisher war zone which has eventually became the movie that we saw a few years ago which some people like some people didn't like i personally enjoy but i found it interesting that the story arc for that or the name for that movie came way back in 92 which i found really interesting one thing that i that i don't know if you've noticed is there's quite a few robin todd mentions in this little article right here oh yes as we get to the robin todd's hype tally we'll find out how that affected the scores <laughs> there's quite a few and in this month's heroes in motion
we're going to be discussing the original Batman 2 script by Sam Hamm, which features a plot to recover five stone ravens to reveal the location of a treasure hidden under Wayne Manor. Order of the Bat Street Gang? Bruce engaged Vicky Vale? What? Marlon Wayne's is Robin? Yeah, so I mean, that's pretty interesting, right? So if, for those who don't know, the original film was actually written by a guy named Sam Hamm. At least the first pass. Sam Hamm's the guy who got the credit, but this other guy came on and rewrote a bunch of stuff named Warren Scarin. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote a bunch of stuff and changed things. One of the first things he changed, actually, was cutting out Robin from the whole script. So we would have gotten Robin in the original film, but he just said it was already just too cluttered, too many characters. There was also going to be Robin in this film, and Marlon Wayans was famously cast. He's talked about it in recent years, but they cut him out. He actually still got paid, and he still gets residuals, because even though he wasn't in the movie, he was technically hired for it and so i always found that to be an interesting bit of trivia was so many times we almost got robin until chris o'donnell finally showed up there's a lot of things about the original script and i do remember researching this a few years back that i was surprised they took out and i understand why they did it for story reasons but the thing that always bothered me about batman returns and i do love the movie as you guys know i'm a huge batman fan they just left a lot of things unexplained like where's harvey dent you know all that stuff is just vanished and it makes no sense and it really bummed me out and i actually also have i think i still have to this day the marlon wayans robin figure that came out on the batman returns action figure line Yep, I got mine up here on the shelf. The hairstyle was kind of what the tip-off was. You were kind of like, huh, he's got a flat top? That's kind of interesting. But yeah, so this story, the original idea for Batman Returns, which I also think it's weird that they got Sam Hamm back if they had just kind of rewritten his script anyway. And this one does seem to be a lot more comic book oriented, you know, Mm -hmm. and in the original continuity, Vicky is still there. She's in on the adventure because, as we know, she is aware of who Bruce Wayne is. (laughs) She knows he's Batman. She's been to the Batcave, so I guess she's in on it. But Catwoman was in it. A version of the penguin is in it mr bonafacci fastidiously fussy bird trainers released after 13 years in prison it's like okay just didn't want to call him the penguin but the most interesting thing to me was at the end it says the script climax is in a dizzying fight to the finish in wayne manor and the Batcave, during which the catwoman is crippled alfred is shot batman and vicky hang once again off a precipice and the penguin discovers batman's identity before falling to his death engulfed in a cloud of bats in the aftermath on christmas eve uh, bruce's present to vicky is a diamond engagement ring just like ah they had a lot of repeating things there and uh catwoman's crippled so she's not coming back for batman forever <laughs> i guess there would have been at least an explanation there if that was the case yeah but did you guys read through this at all did you pick out anything else that stuck out to you in this take the penguin thing is weird like it's really really weird and it makes me wonder where they were going to go with a villain were they just going to make catwoman the main villain I-, I i was a little unsure of that whole story now, I'm curious uh, for you guys as well, because when they mentioned the Order of the Bat, actually the beginning of the film plays out that there's these street gangs, essentially, that are helping out Batman, and Robin is actually part of that, and that's how he gets into the mix. But was the Order of the Bat, was that the group that was in Batman, that book, The Cult? Did he just have, like, a street gang, basically, that was beating up people in his name? 
in the Dark Knight Returns. The, yeah, I was going to say the same thing about Dark Knight Returns, Michael. Yeah, but the mutants at the end of the story when Batman defeats the lead mutant, they then become like the Order of the Bat, and they start to paint their faces with a bat symbol on it, and they fight crime and are ultra-violent towards criminals as opposed to being criminals themselves and i feel like it because based on the timeline of this script would have been written and that book i would say that 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 corresponds with it also in christopher nolan's you know the dark knight in the very beginning there's a bunch of people that are dressing up like batman to you know fight the city remember they they i'm not wearing hockey pants Exactly. Love it. Yeah, but so a much different film than what we got. Batman Returns itself, certainly an oddity. It's a it's a very Tim Burton film, so I think it works on that level. But in the continuity of the Bat films, it kind of stands out. It's like, huh, that's the last word on Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, and it would have been nice to get him back one more time. Still holding out hope, you know, back in the game in a big way in the movies. Please give us the Dark Knight Returns with Michael Keaton as Batman. Batman, we just, we need it. Or or even just, you know, Batman Beyond as him as old Bruce Wayne. That would be kind of cool, too, but I'd love to see him as Dark Knight Returns Batman. That'd be pretty cool. He's not big enough, though, unfortunately. All right, now we're going to take a look at Robin's Reading Rainbow. This time around, listed as one of the books being released this month, was John Byrne's Next Men, number one. And this is an interesting series in that it started in Dark Horse Presents, which, for those who don't know, was kind of an anthology book that Dark Horse would release. And speaking of Frank Miller, concurrently at this time, he was releasing these stories about a character called Marv, and uh, it branched out eventually and became Sin City. So it's just, it's really interesting how John Byrne and Frank Miller were kind of on this creator-owned path at this time. But Next Men was starting basically to be these installments, and you were getting a backstory that was leading into this book. Joe, what did you know about Next Men back in the day, or have you read it? Have you come around to it in recent years? Not really. I mean, anything with John Byrne is quality, and I knew that back then. I think I was just reading so much at the time, I didn't really pick it up. I really haven't bothered to pick it up since. How about you, Michael? What's your exposure to Next Men? I didn't know about this book until about seven days ago, so you told me about it. So that, that would be my... <laughs> My actual exposure, but after I bought it on Comixology and I, you know, was skimming through it and looking at it, the art is beautiful. I mean, like, it's really, really amazing, especially for the time. It just looks really, really nice. It's got almost like a, a 100 bullets kind of feel and, and it's, it's really, really pretty. And I, I'm, I'm amazed by the art and the story looks kind of interesting. It kind of feels like a, an X-Men-y kind of story. You know what I mean? Despite the title, right? You know, John Byrne drew X-Men and wrote X-Men for a brief moment before jumping ship to go release this book but it's not really an x-men ripoff if anything i think it's more like gen 13 in that it's you know this group of young people who were part of a research project that have escaped and have powers but uh, what's interesting is that next men itself started out as a separate 
entity, and then John Byrne was concurrently writing this novel called 2112 or 2112, whatever you want to say about that. But he said, but I bet there's one question the more astute among you, or at least those who have already read what follows, will be asking yourselves. If 2112 was originally conceived as a separate entity, and only subsequently installed as part of the next men timeline, how does it happen that the main bad guy from 2112 plays such a significant role in next men Good question. Maybe it was always in the back of my mind that 2112 should be a part of the next men canon. Certainly I can no longer remember what I was planning to do with next men's ongoing saga before I connected them to 2112. So, after issue 3, he can't remember what he was originally going to do with the next men He just, <laughs> he totally <laughs> forgot that idea. So, oh no, they're just all one thing now. <laughs> So I was like, okay, well, there you go. But I actually found Next Men. Uh, I didn't read it back in the 90s, but I certainly remember seeing the covers and seeing it on the shelf. But at my local bookstore, well, I guess what it's really called is an entertainment exchange store. It's called Bookman's. It's a chain out here in Arizona. And you could basically like just take your old action figures or comics or movies or whatever, and they give you store credit or cash if you want it. And then you can go buy stuff. And they used to have these huge racks of comics just like the old days. They've really downsized lately, but back then it was just full. So I would spend like two hours after work and just go in there and just sift through comics and it was just like nirvana for me. This is it. This is my <laughs> life. I love it. But they also had a bookshelf full of trade. So first I started picking up individual issues of Next Men until I had the whole first run and then on the bookshelf they had all the trades that somebody had turned in. So I bought the entire series and I started reading it and I'm like, wow, this adult semi-real-world take on super-powered characters. And so I'm curious to know from you guys, as you started reading issue number one, what did you think just about the setup to the story? The thing about the story that's unique, I would say, is kind of start off like things have already happened before this issue even comes about. Like, we're, we're in it right from the get-go. There's not like a, oh, this is where it all began. They're just, poof, they're you know, in the beginning of the story. Yeah, like it starts out, I think, with Breakout, right? You yeah. just see like a car barreling through a fence and then you're like wait huh there's this lady and she's taking all these kids and weird outfits and they're all bald and yeah that's the thing there was an issue zero that was released prior to this with which basically explains that there was this genetics research deal where they were taking babies from teen moms and genetically conditioning them to develop powers but they were plugged into this matrix so they were all living in this virtual reality world and in interacting with each other, but they just could make anything appear in their hands. Whenever they needed food, they could have food, but they really, in real life, they were connected to this machine that was doing all this gene therapy and other things on them. So eventually what happens is it's about to get shut down, and this government agent comes in, and suddenly they start waking up. And then they break out of the machines, and then the agent's there to free them, and there's this terrible guy who's a senator. Basically, he's the guy who's been behind it all. There's this creature from the future that was from the 2112 novel who has been guiding him all through history, and it has been giving him the lead-up to becoming president. Wow, how do you know these things, dude? How do you... <laughs> How do you know these things? This is just like so every week, something else. I'm like, oh man, this is something else he knows that I didn't know. It's crazy. But they each have a different power. So there's one guy who's super strong, right? So he's just bigger than everybody else. And then there's a gal who's super agile, so she can just kind of do these super jumps. There's a guy whose eyes are basically mutating, and he can see 
basically has x-ray vision and telescopic vision. And then there's a kid who's super fast, but he runs and he gets like blisters on his feet. Leg muscles get super huge. So it's just like, this is what would happen in real life. Like, this is what would be required for you to actually be able to have super speed. And then the last one that I find the most interesting is there's a gal on the team who has rock hard skin and her hair is like razors. Oh, the blonde? Yeah, because she's the only one with hair. Yeah, so her hair didn't go anywhere because it was growing out into these super sharp shards, I guess. Michael, this is the question, though. So having read it now and basically seen, okay, they're on the run, there's government agents after them, does it make you want to learn more? Is the is the mystery setting successful? I would definitely, if I could find the first volume of a trade, I'd pick it up and read the first volume and see what it's all about. Because what's kind of interesting to me is... These characters, in a way, feel like the archetypes to the Umbrella Academy characters. And it's kind of interesting the way that they were stolen from teen moms or whatever. A lot of it feels like that Umbrella Academy kind of stole some ideas from the story. Come on, Gerard Way, what are you doing? I mean, we know he was reading comics in the 90s. But to me, this seems like it's just presented very cinematically. It, is it could cinematic. be yeah. James Cameron comes to Netflix. You know what I'm saying? Like, he would do an amazing job, I feel like, bringing something like this to life. I, I, I do agree. I think this is very cinematic. Like, it was written to be made into a movie of the time or a TV show or something like that today. The costumes, I think, would need to be updated to a more <laughs> modern-day look because the fishnets and giant cod pieces and and weird armor would probably not translate well today but otherwise the story i think would be super interesting to see as a, as a netflix series or something like that yeah yeah just for anybody who's not sold on next men based on our discussion here eventually down the line they get in contact with a comic book company which is very similar to marvel and has a stan lee type character and they end up being drafted to be superheroes in their own comic book and it's this super meta characterization of superheroes of the day and the industry like it's a really cool discussion down the line that john bird brings to the forefront as you're reading so if you want to seek that part out it's pretty neat no it's interesting wow i'm definitely interested in in reading more about it as an adult i do like a lot of obscure stuff outside of of like the normal marvel and dc stuff and this is something that i would definitely pick up because I'm, I'm really finicky about art, and this art is really, really nice, especially for the time, and it's very cool. So I would definitely check it out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. We are going to enter the oh-so-popular Robin Todd's Hype Machine. Barely any mention of either in this issue. Rob is only mentioned in the top 10 new release sections for X-Force number 8. Both get one mention in the Market Watch, where it is rumored that McFarlane may return for a Venom miniseries in 1992, which never happened. Yeah, I found that pretty interesting, actually. It's like, huh, so they were trying to lure him in. But we know that right about this time is when he is walking into the corporate offices of Marvel with all his buddies behind him, and they make their stand. So Image Comics is not too many issues away at this point. 
So this issue gives us a total tally of Rob getting three mentions and Todd getting one mention, which finally puts Rob barely ahead in the cumulative total with 20 mentions and Todd sitting at 19 mentions. Wow. It's been this, like, right on the edge. Like, is Todd going to keep the crowd? But when he disappeared from comics, that's kind of all they say now. It's like, oh, Todd is gone. His books are going down in value. Joe, Rob versus Todd, what team are you on? Um, Well, here's the thing. I kind of promised I wouldn't curse, so I can't talk <laughs> about Rob Liefeld. Yeah, team Todd all the way to this day until the day I die. That's all I got to say about that. Really? I mean, I know you do like uh, Todd McFarlane toys a lot. I know you're, you're a big Spawn guy, but there's nothing that Liefeld did that you're like, okay, I could get into that. No, I mean, I growing up, I, I read Youngblood, which was his book for Image that he did. I admire his artistic ability at such a young age because he was a guy my old man used to tell me, you know, he's doing this and he's like in his 20s. Like, this is something you could do. But as someone who was trying to learn how to draw – you quickly find out, looking back, Rob Liefeld doesn't know how to draw feet. So he's the reason I couldn't draw feet for such a long time. Um, I think now I've just soured on him based on his opinions of himself and how much he thinks he's important and he's really not that important to the general thing of comics. Deadpool has made him matter for a couple years now, but that's fading again, I think. Oh, he's been riding the wave of Deadpool for the last two or three years. All he, talk, he, he tweets everything that possibly can come of, of, of a Deadpool thing. Like, oh, yeah, I, I, I did Deadpool. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, keep, don't forget me. Remember me. <laughs> I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I know. I know you will. We'll talk afterwards. You can... Yes. <laughs> Speaking of talking, now it's time to start Gamma Gamma Gabbin about the Hulk. This crack might start an earthquake. All right, so this is really interesting, because uh, I know, Joe, you said the Hulk was a pretty big character for you, is that right? Oh, big time, yes. Yeah, huge, 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 especially during this time. Do you have a copy of Incredible Hulk number one, or just Daredevil number one? I have Daredevil number one. I mean, I could go through a, a huge list of yeah. stuff <laughs> I have, but my old man, he, the Hulk was the only character he didn't keep the comics oh. that he had. He traded them for, like, Daredevil comics, and I was always mad at him for that. He swears he had Hulk number one, Incredible Hulk number one, and I don't have it because he traded it or did something with it, and I've always been mad at him for it. Now, uh, th- just as we get a brief history on the Hulk, I think it's so interesting. For those who don't know, Marvel Comics had the Human Torch and Namor the Submariner were kind of their two big superhero characters in the early days. Captain America in the mix. Then superheroes started falling out of favor after World War II, and then it was all sci-fi and monster books that were a big deal. And that's what Marvel was publishing, like Fin Fang Foom came from that period. 
than all these weird characters. But the Hulk, when they created him, he was basically just an extension of their monster brand. Because he was like a mashup. He was Jekyll and Hyde meets Frankenstein and a little Wolfman thrown in. Because he originally changed into the Hulk when it was nighttime. As I mentioned last episode, I have this book called Stan Lee's Amazing Marvel Universe, where he actually has recorded his recollections of important moments in Marvel history. And also, originally, the Hulk was gray, for those who only know our Jade Giant, you know, the Greed Hulk. And so when he was gray in that more brutish monster form, Stan explains why by issue two he became green. I thought I would make him a gray color because I thought that seemed mysterious and scary in a way. So in the first issue, the Hulk was gray. But what happened was the printer had trouble with the gray color, making it consistent throughout the book. So on one page, he looked like he was light gray. On another page, he was dark gray. On some pages, he looked almost white. On some pages, he looked black. And I felt, this will never do. So in the next issue, I figured, I'm going to get a different color for him. And I started looking around to see what other characters were, and I noticed there were no green characters that I could find. So I said, okay, I'll make your skin green. Sum it up there, Stan. Thanks. So I work at a college, and we do predominantly graphic design. But originally, in, in the 50s and 60s, when the program was founded, they, they did printing press work in New York City. And they did a lot of newspaper printing and everything, and, and they had to do you know making of colors and blending of colors. And people that I know that have worked there and retired would, would tell me that they had a very hard time blending certain colors, and they couldn't get it consistent from page to page and it's funny that he mentions that now it was really kind of surprising to me that it, it connected in the same time period yeah and then, and then it affected so much the history of the hulk i mean he's known as a green character right and it was just because of printer error <laughs> yeah and the hulk was an original avenger for one issue and then joe your dad had uh, issue number two and the hulk was already gone by then wasn't he Oh, yeah, believe me, I noticed that right away when I first read that issue. I'm like, where is he going? He's not there. He's on the cover, but it's like an alien, like, impersonating him. Yeah, I was very upset when I was a little kid reading that. Yeah, he was gone. Yeah, he basically continued on as a solo star in his own comics for years and years. I think he joined the Defenders in the 70s yeah. at some point. And actually... Truth be told, he's a, a top-tier character for Marvel. I mean, he's, uh, next to Spider-Man, he's probably the most recognizable. Would you guys agree? Oh, definitely. Big time, yeah, because of the shows he's been on, the show he had, uh, all the different cartoons, the video games, movies. I mean, he's, yeah, he's up there with Spider-Man and me. I mean, he, he has one of the most recognizable lines, and everybody knows the term Hulk smash. People joke about it all the time and use it as memes and whatever. Yeah, I would say he's probably next to Spider-Man. He would definitely be number two. And, and Iron Man and Captain America, I'd say maybe Iron Man tops Captain America now because of, of Robert Downey Jr., but mm-hmm. I'd say Hulk is definitely number two just because of the name, the look, and the signature line. 
Yeah, like, I, you know, I, I personally at this time, I didn't read many Hulk comics. I picked up a few random issues at antique stores throughout my life. And, you know, I, I've said many times on the show already, I was much more interested in the witty, sassy She-Hulks, the stories of his cousin, the, the rampaging brute that was the Hulk. Though, in later years, I did read Planet Hulk and World War Hulk, which were awesome. So I've been aware also, you know, the Red Hulk storyline. But it felt to me like they just, like Spider-Man, they ended up franchising the character to where there were all these random hulks running around the marvel universe you know and it, it kind of got a little crazy for me in the modern day but michael did you read much hulk well let's put it this way when we were kids joe had this incredible hulk poster right over his bed he had two <laughs> two of them actually two of and, them. and one was bruce banner changing into the hulk and then there was just one of, of the giant hulk head and whenever we'd have sleepover parties I was terrified of these pictures. <laughs> terrified. I would have nightmares. I could. I would hide my sleeping bag on the floor and just so I could not see these posters. So that for that reason alone, I never read the Hulk in that time period. I just kind of like lived vicariously through Joe's stories about the Hulk because of those posters. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, see, like, and I only ever had like, as far as like Hulk merchandise, I had a Hulk towel. So it was actually this weird, just like little kid talent it had the hulk printed on it and i had a hulk leather wallet it wasn't actually leather it was like cheap plastic made to look like leather <laughs> which I actually gifted to our previous host jeff who was on so he's got that in his collection now <laughs> uh, and then i had the mego hulk doll did you really wow that's cool Yes, I I enjoyed playing with him back in the day, Mego Hulk and Mego Spider-Man, along with my Mego Eric Estrada from Chips doll, had some adventures. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I got him on clearance at Kmart at some point, because they were pretty old by the time I was picking them up. But like you mentioned, Joe, the Hulk really got that major notoriety boost in the late 70s when the Incredible Hulk TV series with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno was a hit on CBS. I feel like I know that cast best from the 80s TV movies, so Return of the Incredible Hulk, Trial of the Incredible Hulk, Death of the Incredible Hulk. Do you guys have very many memories of those movies or that series? Like, have you watched very much of it? So, I did watch a lot of the show, what it was like on reruns. My first real memory of watching those Hulk things was Trial for the Incredible Hulk and the Death of the Incredible Hulk. Is that the one where he dives out of the helicopter or he yep, falls? Yeah, at the end. Yeah. Uh, falls, yeah. Yeah, that, I, I remember that because it really like resonated with me and I, I stuck with me for a while. That was my first real memories. I, I do, I vividly remember those two movies. Uh, and then I did watch the show because it was kind of cool to like see this kind of loner guy traveling around the country and, you know, helping people and, do, 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 do. And the music. Do, 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 oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> so sad. Breaks my heart to this day. The oh. Lonely Man theme, I think it's yeah. called. Yeah. All right. Hold on to your butts. Um, <laughs> so the whole, once I figured out this whole comic book thing for my dad and really got into the Hulk, I would chase down anything that was the Hulk. Anything. This TV show that I was previously kind of scared of when I'd see it in reruns on like Channel 11. I watched it all. And then they started making those movies that you're talking about, the made-for-TV movies. They did the first one, I think, was The Return of the Incredible Hulk with Thor, okay? Yeah. There's a scene in that in that little movie where the bad guy took 
Banner's uh, girlfriend, and the Hulk and Thor are holding on to a helicopter, trying to bring the helicopter <laughs> down. Yes. I broke my couch because I would reenact that scene all the time as the Hulk. I love those TV movies. They were, were so cool. I I haven't watched them recently, but I remember loving, loving, loving those and like running into walls, thinking I could break the walls like the Hulk. I I, I loved it. I really did. Bill Bixby is is my Dr. Banner. And Lou Ferrigno, I, I love him to death. I really wish they had done like an actual person in the movies instead of a CGI creation. Michael disagrees with me, but that's that. <laughs> well, well, speaking of the Hulk movies then, so which version of the Hulk is your favorite then, guys, at this point? You like your Eric Bana? You like your Ed Norton? You like what Mark Ruffalo's been doing the last few years? What do you think? I liked Eric Bana's... Bruce Banner a lot. I really did. I thought he played Bruce Banner really well. I felt Ed Norton's was a little over the top. Like it, it just, I, I, even though he's a great actor, it didn't work for me. I do like Ruffalo's first incarnation in Avengers. The most recent incarnation in Endgame. I don't like Intelligent Hulk who doesn't punch anybody. That. Who does selfies. <laughs> right, he does selfies. He's the most powerful character that the Avengers have, really. And he and, Th- and, and Thanos never really get that chance to have a rematch fight after the beginning of Infinity War, and that bummed me out. Joe? Okay, now, I feel bad for Eric Bana because I feel like he got settled in with that bad CGI. I think he did a great job as Banner himself. It's just the CGI was off. For that movie, looking back at it. And as far as Ed Norton, I liked Ed Norton because I felt like that was taking the TV show and applying it on the big screen, which I wanted to see since I was a little kid. It didn't work out because egos or whatever. Ruffalo's serviceable. I, I don't mind. I don't dislike him. I just dislike what they're doing with the Hulk in those these later movies, like Michael said, in a better way than I could, that he never got a rematch and... He's the most powerful character. You want to see him fight, and they never did that for us. So ultimately, my favorites are Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I liked actually where Ed Norton was taking the character in the deleted scenes from his film. Because, you know, his whole big deal was, I'll be in your movie if you let me write it or rewrite it. And then they let him film those scenes, and then they cut them all out. And that it was just action, action, action. And you did get, like, this dark, psychological, this brooding, everything he's trying to deal with. Although, I don't think that version could have sustained itself. Just, I don't think people would want to come back again and again and see that version of Bruce Banner just being this totally, you know, stressed out character who's really trying to be in control. The slightly aloof, nervous, goofy Bruce Banner that Ruffalo is doing, it gives us endlessly entertaining films, I mean, we've already had a lot of variations of that character, you know, starting with Avengers and going forward. And yes, the actual Hulk itself is unfortunately falling by the wayside. You know, even like Thor Ragnarok, he was great there, but it was more about the comedy. Um, And so I think with Marvel getting the rights back to the Hulk, as Michael told us about recently, just I hope what they do if they give the Hulk his own movie finally, is a Grey Hulk Mr. Fix-It story for a solo movie. Because I feel like that's the side we haven't seen yet, and I think that would make for a really interesting movie. 
Um, so he's still got the brains, but now he's a little bit darker. He's a little edgier. He's a little more rough because he's already chosen to be the Hulk full time. So now what happens when he changes into Gray Hulk? We you know, let's see. Maybe we'll do that on Sequel Quest, my other podcast. That'd be great. Speaking of Sequel Quest, let's take a break to tell you about another show here on the Retro Network hosted by, well, me. Have you ever wished one of your favorite movies had come back to theaters with an all-new adventure? Have you ever imagined how a disappointing sequel could have been rewritten to fulfill your fanfic fantasies? Then Sequel Quest is the podcast for you. Each week, Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy meet to pitch their ideas for a prequel, sequel, or reboot of movies like E.T., The Extraterrestrial, The Mask, Tron, Hook, Masters of the Universe, The Goonies, and more. Past shows from our archives are released every Friday with a brand spanking new episode coming your way each month only on the retro network this march we're getting mean and green as we pitch a sequel to the 2008 incredible hulk film starring mcu castaway ed norton what would the incredible hulk 2 look like in theaters tune in and find out and now back to the show so uh, returning to the comics as we close out here, because like you said, Joe, you were really reading these comics at the time. And so this is how I feel is that, you know, we talked about Hulk being a top tier character, but I feel like he didn't get critical praise in comics until the 80s when Peter David started writing the book. I can't agree with you more on that. Definitely. Peter David, he hit a home run. He took all these things that, you know, the gray and green Hulk and he, he put a different spin on them. He made it really like heady. No pun intended for what they actually, you know, did with the <laughs> character. But, yeah, he he sh- should get more credit than he does. Definitely. Well, yeah, and I feel like if, if anybody thinks of the Hulk, like, oh, who is a great writer for the Hulk? You just immediately go to Peter David. Like, he's oh, almost the only yeah. one that stands out. Because, like you said, yeah, he separated the Hulk from Banner. He had this whole abused child angle. He, he brought back the Grey Hulk. And then the Monarch, the spirited future timeline Hulk, you know, like, he had all these weird things. But one thing that's very interesting in this issue, when they interview Peter David regarding that child abuse backstory, it mentions here, but David David is quick to admit he was not the first writer to suggest that this background for Robert Bruce Banner and his jade alter ego. The inspiration for David's run on the character came, he notes, from a story published nearly nearly 15 years ago. Bill Mantlo did this wonderful story that set up Bruce as an abused child and implied that the potential for the Hulk was there all along and the Gamma Bomb just released it. I thought this was incredible fodder for a series of stories, but then Bill never did anything with it. I couldn't understand it. He went off in another direction. No, 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 wait! What about... This? story over here so he was it seemed like he was waiting all these years just to jump back on that and explore it yeah he picked up that ball and ran with it man it i love that storyline i really do yeah and i was reading through the comics on comiXology they have a, a visionaries hulk visionaries collection that is all the major peter david stories of that time and yeah it's it's pretty fascinating what he was doing and like you said it is very heady in that there's a lot of dialogue there's a lot of psychological oh, yeah. banter in those books but at the same time for a lot of it you have todd mcfarlane doing some actually pretty impressive visual storytelling and it's pretty great my favorite thing about it though is when the gray hulk emerges and he's trying to figure it out he's like how do i stay you know here and not let banner wake up 
and get rid of me and find some way to keep me suppressed. And so he goes into a liquor store at, you know, the early morning hours and just gets blind drunk so that when Banner wakes up, he's too drunk to do anything or say (laughs) anything and he ends up in jail. Like it just cracked me up. It was like, oh, Great Hulk's a genius. Yeah, an evil genius. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing I'll just say here is this issue is actually the first issue of Wizard to have a variant cover. So this is something that they would actually do uh, going forward. But in issue six, they had the green cover was the main one that they released, but they had a Gray Hulk variant, which I thought was pretty cool. I don't know where that was released. I'm going to assume mainly to comic book shops, but that's what I can't even find on eBay right now. Like, I can't find it having been sold in the last few months. Just seems like whoever's got those is uh, hanging on to them tightly. I didn't know they were doing variant cover. I knew they had the Comic-Con one, but I didn't know about other variants. That's kind of interesting. Now I'm, I'm intrigued to see what other variants we, we come up to as, as time goes on. So we'll be uh, diving deep into the Punisher's Price Guide right now. With Incredible Hulk number one, listed in 1991 for $1,600 selling on eBay in the year 2020 for $2,000. So it's actually a pretty valuable book. That's pretty amazing. A graded copy sells for $12,000. This is crazy to me. You you have somebody look at your book and you put it in plastic and now it, it skyrockets. You get 10000 more for your book. That is insane. But Joe, I'm sorry your dad traded that for Daredevil books. We'll, we'll cover that in a future episode. We'll let you know how much your Daredevil number one's going for. Got to be doing pretty good these days, I all things considered. That show, yeah. I wonder how much of the jump in the, the price now for Hulk number one, I wonder how much of that is credited to the movies really putting him out there like now you know like people want it more than they did before well congratulations hulk number one you are a fire star now we're gonna open up the toy chest for Azrael's action figure fury So, Joe, word has it that you had a huge action figure collection as a kid. Michael has told us that when he was looking for a toy, he knew he could stop by your house. What what was the story there? How did you get in on your collecting? Where did all these toys come from? They were always there. But I, I had Secret War figures before I picked up a comic book. And I had superpower figures, obviously, from the, the TV show Super Friends and stuff. But once I got back, like, once I got into comics with my dad, we went, like, crazy to all these toy stores that were like closing and we like basically tried to finish off the secret war line that we had i I had all the play sets from these toy stores that were closing and they had them they were like liquidating everything and i got dr doom's roller which was like the the roller was awesome yeah the (laughs) roller right like it was battery powered and it would roll by itself like i was that was insane we got dr doom's like uh whatever fortress thing that he had we had all these toys like it was great 
Obviously, I had things like He-Man and stuff like that, but but really, like the the star of it was the Secret War stuff for me. Did any of those survive, by the way? Oh yeah, I have, a, have, I have a handful. My daughter plays with some of them now. They're, what? They're not in the best condition. Put them in yeah, glass. Are you insane? What? Dude, I, you have to see the Spider-Man Secret War figure I have. That thing was. I, it's been through some battles, man. Like even before <laughs> she touched them. So yeah, it's fine. I don't care. I'm not going to sell any of this stuff. But it's for it's for her and me. So in this issue, in the toying around section, the columnist Brian Cunningham lists his top ten superhero action figures of all time. So I'll read them off here quickly. Number ten was the Toy Biz Nightcrawler. Number nine was Toy Biz Iron Man. Number eight was Superpower. Flash. Number seven was Secret Wars Black Costume Spider-Man. I've got that one myself. Amigo Aquaman, Superpowers Cyborg, Amigo Green Arrow, Superpowers Mr. Miracle, the Toy Biz Super Size Venom, and number one, the Toy Biz Batman. Wait, just kidding. I meant Superpowers Green Lantern. Not a bad list. Not a bad list at all. So now each of us are going to take our turns suggesting what are the top 10 superhero action figures. So Joe, with your vast knowledge and your previous collection. My number 10 is the Toy Biz Venom with the living skin pour. That he, it's a figure that came with like this ooze that you would scoop into the back of the figure and it would have a plunger and you'd push it and it would look like the, the symbiote is coming out of his chest. Right. The slime would the just slime. ooze through. Yeah. Yep. Remember the, that thing. I've got a boxed one on the wall here in my no, room. That's dude, one of my favorites really? too. Yeah. Wow. Michael, you know how I remember that toy? The first time I got it, my mom said, don't you get that ooze on my carpet. <laughs> Michael, what's the first thing I probably did with it? You I got, got the, the ooze on the carpet. Without question. Yeah. Without question. First thing I did. So, yeah, that was that was her fault, really. I mean, took it as, like, do this, so whatever. Don't um, push the red button. Okay. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> yeah, don't push the red button. Yeah, okay. Good. Good. Thanks, Ma. Um, <laughs> my number nine is the DC Comics Superheroes Toy Biz Penguin. The reason it was my number ten, it's kind of an odd figure. Michael might be scratching his head, but it was really the Superpowers Penguin figure only bigger. And I always love that classic design with the weird different color umbrella. That's my number nine. My number eight is, does anybody remember Swamp Thing had a cartoon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It had like the greatest theme song that was like a ripoff of another song ever. Swamp so, Thing. Doo -doo, yeah, doo -doo. exactly. <laughs> so they had, they had figures at the time for that that cartoon and the the one i loved was the snare arm swamp thing because it was supposed to mimic his ability to stretch and reach it's just his arm on a string but whatever it was cool and this one will always be on my my list this next one my number seven is the marvel superheroes incredible hulk figure not just because it's a hot topic on tonight's show but because i always love that figure it was really cool to me they finally got the Incredible Hulk looking good. His face kind of rem reminds me of uh, Lou Ferrigno, his hair. I was always upset that the Hulk was never included in the Secret War line. I don't know why. But that one is the Toy Biz one is one of my favorite all-time toys ever. My number six is Superpowers Green Lantern. I had two of them. I don't know why I had two of them. I probably lost one and made my parents rush out to get me another one because it was so important. 
So <laughs> that's and it's Hal Jordan and Michael. You know how much I love Hal Jordan. I do know. So there's that one. And my number five, I'm willing to bet, might be the top of other people's lists. But my number five is the Toy Biz Uncanny X-Men second edition of Wolverine. Because this was the one where he had the mask on. It wasn't like a ring that you could take mm-hmm. off and put it on. And it had the claws that you could pop out. They kind of looked like little rakes. But it, it was as close as you could get to that character at the time in a, in a figure. That was the yellow and blue, right? Yeah, the yellow and blue suit. My number four is Secret Wars Dr. Octopus. Oh, that, just because I remember you had that figure. That was a great figure. It is exactly what I always think Doc Ock looks like. That, to me, was perfect. That was, you can't beat that as, as that, in that line. I think it was the best one in the line. My number three is Superboy from the Superman Man of Steel collection that they did. But the Superboy one is, like, spot on. It's Connor Kent. It's glorious. I love it. But is, the, is this the 90s Superboy with the leather yeah. jacket? Yeah, with the leather jacket, yeah. Oh, awesome. I, yeah, saw, I, I, saw, find that one. I saw yeah. that figure last night, and I was looking through my DC action figure archive book. I saw that one. I was like, I think Joe had that one. I think I remember that. <laughs> Adam, when I was growing up, when a teenager and stuff, when this, the death and return of Superman happened, I would try so hard to get my weird hair to be his haircut. Like, <laughs> I wanted to be... That Superboy. I used to wear a leather jacket. I wanted to be that Superboy. I was so I was so sure that that was going to be Superman from that story on. He was going to be the Superman. He was the one who was going to win the reign of the Superman. He yeah, would he reign. Yeah, he was the one. And then the real one came back, and I'm like, oh, I was I was wrong. Whatever. So. <laughs> well, he had a hairstyle you want to emulate, right? Don't you want the long hair, Super Bullet? Oh. Uh, no, not really. Not, not, not really. I love Superman, but not not really. My number two is the Superpowers Hawkman. You cannot get any better than this. The Hawkman figure figure was great. It went along with the idea of the figures would, you would squeeze their legs and they'd do something. It wasn't something weird. His wings would flap when you did that, when you'd squeeze his legs. Like Batman would do like a karate chop, like, or it's called a bat chop on the uh, box. I don't know what a bat chop is, but whatever. I actually had, I had that. I forgot that I had that Hawk. We both had that Hawkman figure. That's right. I remember that. And yes, Michael the- also had Dr. Fate from that line of figures, some superpowers. And he also had Dark Side. Which, believe me, I, whenever I went to his house, I thought about bringing it home with me. Both <laughs> I wanted to steal his, his Dr. Octopus, so we could have probably made a trade there and got something worked out. <laughs> well, I wanted all the toys. I didn't want to trade. <laughs> I wanted them all. That's pretty funny. That, to me, was a great figure. But my all-time favorite figure is the Superpowers Superman figure. I don't really need to explain why. It's Superman. Yeah. All right. I'll I'll go run down my list. My my list is not as diverse as Joe's, uh, but I, I got a couple of good ones on here, and some that people might be surprised by. So my number ten is the Superpowers Aquaman. Mmm. Very cool figure. Growing up, I always loved Aquaman. Like he was one of my like top five uh, characters in DC. Maybe maybe top three. And that figure was really cool because I, I love the water and love the ocean. And he had the he had the trident. I don't know. I, I dug it. That was my top. My number ten. My number nine is a, a figure that 
Joe actually bought me, I don't know if you remember this, it was in 1998, the Glider Strike Batman from the New Adventures of Batman, the series. It was a purple bat suit, and he had wings, and he had like a hook on the end. And when you had first come back from Florida and came back to, to our high school with, with me, you gave that to me. I forget when as a, as a gift, and I, I still have that figure to this day. And that was one of my favorite figures. It was just a cool kind of thing. I was like, oh, he's got bat wings. Awesome. I dig it. My next one is the DC Superheroes Toy Biz figure of Lex Luthor. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but that Lex Luthor, he came with a kryptonite ring. Yes. And you'd put the kryptonite ring up against Superman, and it would knock him down because there was magnets in both figure in, in the ring and the figures, and it would be like you're getting him with the kryptonite. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. i got to get this. And he had his fist was in this weird position where, like, if you pushed his arm, his fist would kind of, like, shoot up. And but the the ring always stuck with me. And even though like it, it wasn't a cool looking figure because he was like in a purple jacket and suit, that ring was just awesome. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna knock Superman down with this ring every time. The next one, uh, it, it was kind of a tie, but I, I went with one over the other because I had both of them. Is from 1992's Kenner line from Batman Returns was the Arctic Batman, where it was like a, a white top and he had like a an arctic dome suit for like fighting the snow or the cold or mr freeze yeah or mr freeze even though mr freeze was not anywhere near batman returns they had this figure <laughs> and it just looked cool and the, the tie for this one was another one that was like a he was like a scuba suit the scuba one new, i had that i had this i one. had that one too and i loved that one i loved it i, I both of those it was, a, it was a hard tie on both of those Number six for me was from Kenner, 1992. Robin, because of the flat top, he actually had the black and yellow cape, which was kind of cool. I just loved that figure. And I, I had the original, like, superpowers, Robin as well, in in the booty shorts and, <laughs> and, and the karate chop action. And, and that figure was always, like, kind of nostalgic to me. But this was the first time I was like, they made the Robin that I love, the Tim Drake Robin, into an action figure, even though it doesn't really look like him, but I'm okay with that. It's cool. I dig it. Uh, Number five for me was the Secret Wars Spider-Man. There was nothing special really about this character other than that it was Spider-Man, and Joe and I both loved Spider-Man. We both read it all the time, and and even though the paint would constantly you know, kind of wear off over time and it all the webbing on the suit would kind of eventually fade away. It yeah, was really like this, this white, and, white and blue glob, but it works, but it's cool. So I'm, I'm good. Number four is the blue and gray superpowers Batman from series one from 1984 to 86 was my very first action figure was that. And I remember getting that for Christmas when I was probably about three years old. And there's a picture of me somewhere my family has of me asleep on a couch holding that figure (laughs) and the booty shorts robin and i got those for christmas when i was about three years old and it's kind of unique because my daughter is three years old and she got a batman for christmas herself this year and she 
clings to that thing all the time. And she goes, Daddy, this is your Batman, too. We share it. I said, okay, kid, no problem. That's awesome. So um, cute. Yeah. We got to see that picture, by the way, Michael. You got to find that. I will find it. Number three is also a, a, a solid tie, and I couldn't decide between the two. So I put them both. The Secret Wars Captain America and the Secret Wars Daredevil. I did not own the Daredevil. Joe had it. And every time we went over there, all I wanted to do was steal it. Even though I knew, I was like, I can't steal it because his dad's favorite character is Daredevil. So I can't steal this. But man, oh, I thought awesome. about it every single time we played. I was like, oh, I need that Daredevil. So that's oh, my number That's three. awesome. And, uh, you know, the, the thing was that was weird about the, the Secret Wars figures was like, Captain America had a shield, but it wasn't his actual shield. It was like yeah, it wasn't ref- his actual shield. Yeah, was, they all had these reflector disc shields. That was kind of weird. And after the opening of the package, I don't think I ever saw those shields again. It, no, like I just kind of like threw them away and discarded them because it wasn't his shield. It just you know played with them as you know without a shield, and I was okay with that. Number two, also from the Batman Returns line in 1992, the Catwoman figure. Hmm. And I don't know why it. It was one of the most accurate figures I'd ever seen at the time. I always thought it was so cool. It had the whip. It was like it looked like Michelle Pfeiffer come to life in a toy, and I, I really was obsessed with that. I feel like that was one that when my mother was throwing out my toys when I was in college, that was one of the ones that I like, I got to hide this because she's going to chuck this, and I'm going to be really <laughs> upset if she does. And my number one in, in 1989, when, when the first Batman movie came out, when we went to the theater, they gave you a catalog for the action figures that you had to mail away for. I had begged my mother, I'm like, please, I need the whole set. So she had gotten me the Batcave, the Batwing, the Joker figure, Bob the Joker's goon. Classic. <laughs> and the Michael Keaton Batman with the retractable belt, which was my number one. And the reason why this is my number one is Joe and I both had this figure. And in his bedroom, he had this lamp on his desk that had like an arm that would swing out. And we would both hang our Batman on there and like zip line them up. And, you know, they kind of like would act as a team together. And it stood slightly taller than all the rest of our action figures. And it was it was one of those things that it was like we shared that together and that was really, really cool. And Joe was always jealous of my Bob the Joker's goon, which was pretty funny. It was unique that we both had that figure. We play in his room. That's my number one. Are you trying to make me cry? Yes, Joe. I'm really <laughs> make you cry. We need, we need more crying on this show. So there you go. You can forget it. <laughs> oh, love it. These are great lists. All right. So I'll cap us off here. My first, number 10, is Batman from Batman the Animated Series. When those figures came out, it was the first time I had ever seen an action figure translated from screen perfectly to a three-dimensional piece of plastic. They were sculpted just like the Bruce Tim artwork. And so, although I actually didn't buy them, I just admired them. That's I had to awesome. make that my number 10, just the artistry of it. Number nine is the Toy Biz X-Men Sabretooth figure. Now, this is kind of random, probably, for a lot of people. There was a Sabretooth big deal, but... 
this is another situation where the crafting of this figure, just the anatomy, the musculature, everything on it is beautiful. And the figure itself has a feature that I love, which is, I don't know if you remember the second wave of real Ghostbusters figures, where you would squeeze their legs and their eyes would bulge out or their hair would pop up. Peter Vinkman, I had Peter Vinkman. I had yeah, Egon. <laughs> I, I had those too, but Sabretooth, not only do when you squeeze his legs, his arms flare out like with his claw hands, but his mouth opens like he's screaming at you and snarling. And so I would make him talk and taunt Wolverine. I just, I love that figure. Number eight is the Spider-Man, the animated series, Battle Ravaged Spider-Man. Now, this is like the coolest figure. What it is, is his mask is all ripped up, so you see like a piece of his forehead with the hair sticking out, and his mouth is ripped out, and like just all the different parts of his costume are are ripped to shreds. And then he came with the Spider-Man web backpack. I just love the idea that I could put my Spider-Man figure in a battle and then halfway through switch him out. And it's like, oh, he's on his last legs. Come on, Spidey. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, Number seven is the X-Men Classics line. It was a gambit, but it was a gambit that lit up the cards that you would put into his hand. So there was like a battery in the figure, and then there was a stream of cards, and then when you inserted it into his hand, it would light up, which is what was missing from the original. So I always just respected them for figuring out how to make the quintessential gambit. Number six is Jim Lee's Wildcats Grifter from Playmates. Grifter was one of my favorite characters. I love Grifter. Grifter is a cool character. I always liked. I actually liked him a lot in the Flashpoint story that he was a big, a major part of that story. I, I became a big fan of him from that. It's still crazy to be a wild store. All those characters are DC. It's, but yeah, so, but just from a craftsmanship standpoint, again, the sculpt on all of those Wildcats figures. I had Grifter, I had Maul, I had Hellspawn, and I didn't even read Wildcats comics at all. Really? But the fi- the figures were so beautiful, I had to buy them. Oh. Number five is Marvel Superheroes Toy Biz Venom 2. So the one that came after Joe's pick. And this one, the reason I loved it is that first Venom, although it had the cool ooze out of the chest, his arms had no articulation. Oh no, he looked a gorilla. <laughs> like a gorilla. <laughs> he was super bulky. It was weird. And the second one was very streamlined and very spelt. And he was fully articulated. He had a flicking tongue that would come out. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But he, he just looked more like the Todd McFarlane version of Venom, just from the design aspect. And so I always preferred that one, although I have both on my wall in the package. Like, they're both awesome. Speaking of Todd, number four is that first Spawn action figure. I mean, that thing changed the game. Yeah, it did. Oh, yeah. And again, it was a situation where I didn't read Spawn, I didn't care about any of the Wetworks characters and all these other image comics that were being released through the McFarlane Toys line, but just the way that they were sculpted and, you know, the accessories they came with, they just, they were pretty awesome. And I always just respected them so much in terms of just action figure history that was a real turning point did you ever see there's a like a making of documentary with todd mcfarland where it explains how they would design the toys or where they would bring in oh i gotta look that yeah, up yeah it's pretty cool he would have actors or models or whatever come in and they would take 3d pictures of them 
and, and in different articulations, and then they would sculpt the figure based on whatever kind of like rendering they could come up with based on the the models and stuff like that. And it was really interesting. Yeah, it's got to be on YouTube. I got to check that out. That's great. Number three, getting down to it here, is Superpowers Lex Luthor. Second Lex Luthor pick on here. For me, the main reason is, uh, I mean, he looked awesome. You know, he had his green and purple armor. It was so cool. But I got that figure. I may have mentioned it in episode zero. My mom randomly went to a department store in like 1992 1993 and she came home with the superpowers lex luther on the card still wow. in the box and i was like huh? yeah like it was just like old stock that somebody threw out on a shelf and she brought that to me and it just blew my mind i was just like i can't believe it and so you know <laughs> of course i i don't leave anything in the box until these days so back then i just opened it immediately and i was playing with it and you know i put it up against my superman and all of that so although i do believe the superpower is superman your number one joe was it's absolutely the best superman that's ever existed i mean there's been a lot of superman figures oh, yeah. you know throughout the decades but that one just quintessential superman is, right and then number two going back to the spider-man the animated series line is just the peter parker figure the idea that they released it it looked just like the character in the cartoon he came with a little camera accessory and i had the daily bugle playset. oh wow i loved having spidey go behind a dumpster and be peter parker <laughs> and then i pulled the spider-man figure out and he changed that's incredible that's awesome i love it i just feel like what they missed was if they could have inserted a spider-man mask that he could have put over his head or at least like a half mask with spider sense that would have been really awesome it just connected it to the character a little bit more and then my number one also has to do with transformations i can't get enough but it is the dark knight collection slash batman returns transforming bruce wayne That figure, in terms of character likenesses, again, you had never seen anything that close to an actor in a toy before, and that was Michael Keaton. I have that figure and the one, the the re-release that came with the car where he had the purple shirt as well. I have both of those. That's cool. Yeah, no, I love that figure too. I, I didn't put that on my list because when he was in the bat suit you had <laughs> it looked so bulky and didn't look right like the gloves were too big the cowl yeah. looked too big but when you took it out and he's just michael keaton you're like this is exactly michael keaton 100 percent. i'll find them in my basement and i will take pictures and i will send them to you to put in our instagram do it do it i mean honestly i could nominate the entire dark knight collection i mean you had several of the figures already in your list michael i mean toy biz we were happy to have them you got that memory of you guys playing in joe's room with them but you gotta admit the toy biz sculpts were terrible they were oh, yeah, and when they, they got back oh, yeah. to kenner yeah. kenner's crap craftsmanship on those just could not be beat i mean batman has had the best figures of really any superhero the thing that bummed me about the toy biz one was the joker in particular looked nothing like jack nicholson not even slightly and i was like what is this it was basically just the superpowers figure and they just kind of redid it poorly yeah but my last comment just on the transforming bruce wayne i love it so much i bought the t-shirt that is that long sleeve turtleneck shirt. You could buy that. They made that into a t-shirt? Yeah, and I have it. Are you for real? 
I'm going to post a picture to social media of me posed as Bruce Wayne is on the box, holding the cowl in my hand. Wow. I didn't know they had a shirt of that. I would have definitely owned that shirt. I'll I'll shoot you the link. You got to get it. Please. I will. I'll buy it. I'll buy it tomorrow. (laughs) Don't tell my wife. (laughs) Well, man, this has been a super fun show. Joe, thank you so much for being with us and sharing these memories. It's so fun to hear all the, the times you guys shared together as kids. I mean, comics will bond you, toys will bond you, and then just the, that the friendship has continued throughout your lives. That's so cool. Adam, I really appreciate you guys having me. I really appreciate what you guys are doing with this podcast. I did read Wizard Magazine. I didn't get to really speak about it because I, you know, tell different weird stories, but it's very cool what you guys are doing with this because I love comics and Wizard was a big deal and it should not be forgotten. Thank you, buddy, for coming on and, you know, spending the last couple of hours in the middle of the night with us. And Adam, do you want to talk about what we have coming up? Yeah, so th- this is exciting. You know, as always, uh, we want to thank the Retro Network for letting us bring this fun to you a couple times a month. As kind of a thank you to all of you, we're actually putting together a bonus episode. We're going to be talking about the 1990 The Flash series starring John Wesley Shipp. Who we recently tweeted and he commented on, which was pretty cool. That was exciting. Yeah, well, we'll give you the full story on the episode, so stay tuned. And if you get a chance, you're loving the show. Remember, we are on the Retro Network, so go on over to wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and leave a five-star review for the Retro Network, because all the content they're putting out there is great, and especially in the podcast realm, we're part of it. If we deserve five stars, pass it along to the Retro Network, and it'll bring more people in. So, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.